So real quick, uh, when I say the word wish, wish, uh, what do you think of? Like what kind of pops into your mind? You take a second to think about it. If I say like wishing for something, what do you think of? So I did this. I was doing this. I wanted to see what would pop into my mind. So three things popped into my mind. Okay? The third thing that popped, <coughs> excuse me, the third thing that popped into my mind was um, the movie Aladdin. Right? Aladdin popped into my mind, not the remake, that abomination, whatever it was, like the Will Smith version, but, you know, the original one right, with Robin Williams and, like, you know, Brad Kane and, like, you know, I, why do I even know? That's the voice actor of Aladdin, the original one. You know, and uh, that popped into my mind. The, that was the third thing, though. The second thing that popped into my mind was, uh, like, your birthday, like making a wish on your birthday, blowing out the candles, but the first thing that popped into my mind when I thought of the idea of wishing was um, the song, When You Wish Upon a Star. Like, I don't know why, but that just popped into my mind. And it's, it's funny because I don't know, I don't know if you, do you guys know the lyrics to that song? So these are the actual lyrics to that song, When You Wish Upon a Star. When you wish upon a star makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. If your heart, now none of you guys know the next line, right? This is the next line. If your heart is in your dream, no request is too extreme when you wish upon a star as dreamers do. Right? And that's like a famous Disney song. And I thought about it, and I thought that this song captured so well our culture because our culture loves to dream and to wish and don't get me wrong there's nothing wrong with dreaming there's nothing wrong with wishing and in fact I think we need to dream that's a very important part of who we are and how we should live our lives but somehow over time we've come to believe that in order to find fulfillment in life we only need to dream, dream bigger and wish harder. And in fact, I saw this even in church. Um, so, you know, many of you guys know I was on sabbatical. And so Boomi and I, we went and we visited a bunch of churches. It's really weird. This is a really weird thing for me because um, I don't do this a lot. There's, there are a couple seasons in my life when I've done this. You know, one of them was before we planted the church, visited a bunch of churches, you know. And... Um, this was kind of another extended time in my life where I could just go visit churches. And so we visited, like, these huge mega churches, right? There's, like, thousands of people. And, you know, because I like going and I like seeing what they're doing and what are the programs and kind of how do they reach people. And I, I love learning about this kind of stuff and just even for my own personal professional development, which is part of why I was on sabbatical. And so we, we go, we visit this church, and it's like, kind of crazy. I mean, I, I, I've been to, you know, mega churches before, but we would walk in. It's a little bit overwhelming when you go through the main, like, lobby. So most of the churches we visited, the lobby is as big as this room, right? Uh, bigger than this room, usually. You know, so, like, you're walking down. So imagine this is the, like, the entrance, you know, like, the foyer, like, the entrance, right? So you walk in, and just across the, this happened at multiple churches, this entire wall here, there's papers on the wall, and there's sign-ups. Like, there's a table that goes the length of this wall, and it's sign-ups, right? And it's like, 
Wednesday hiking, Tuesday biking, you know, it's like bingo club, it's like swimmers, tennis, you know, there's like all this stuff, it's like interests, it's like interest groups, and there's a ton of interest groups, and then there's like, I mean, and there's tons of stuff, it's like parents with special needs kids, it's like single moms, you know, divorcees, like all these groups, I mean, donuts were everywhere. There was like a donut station every five feet. I would go, like one of the campuses we went to is just huge. I don't want to say any of the churches, but like it's a huge campus, okay? We go, we drop the kids off at Children's. There's all these kids running around. They're, it's all electronic. Like they give your kid a thing. They scan them in. You know, they get your number so they can shoot your, your number on the screen or they can text you, you know, if something goes wrong. There's a train, like one of the places we visited had a little train where people are lined up. Like service is going on, right? Like it's service time. There's worship coming out of the speakers, but there's families lined up at the train so they can come on the train. It's like a kid train, you know, like like something you would see at Disneyland. Literally, there's a train and there's like a line of people and people are getting on the train and they're riding the train. And we're passing, you know, we were a little late, so we're passing by and we're like, Oh, that's cool. You know, we got to check that out later, right? Like after service, we go into service. And most of the services, if you've ever been to any kind of popular church, I guess, these days, um, there isn't that much stuff that happens. It's usually like worship, it's the message, and then it's over, pretty much. Or it's worship announcements, message, and it's over. And, you know, we're walking out of the church, and it's great to sit there, like hear the word, you know, and it's, it's huge. There's thousands of people. It's a big production. We're walking outside. So it's funny because one of the churches, um, Boomi's friend was on praise team. She didn't know. And she's like, oh, that's my friend. You know, let's go try to, like, talk to her. So we're trying to, you know, weave through the crowd of thousands of people. We couldn't get to her. And so we're leaving. And Boomi's like, what is all this, like, smoke? And I was like, that's a, that's a fog machine. <laughs> you know, that's what that is. She's like, no, it's not. And I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a fog machine. Look, like, you can see it. So the whole room is, like, filled with fog and stuff. And the thing is, okay, like, I'm not, and I, 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 I don't want to, like, criticize any of these churches because I think there's different churches for different people. And I love that the church is trying to be accessible. But at the same time, there was something about it that made me feel like, but what is the message? You know, what really does this deliver? And this is, I'm just being honest, like, as a pastor, this is, something, this is the kind of thing that I think about all the time, right? Like, what is really important to send out, right? Like, where, where is the line between wanting people to come to your church versus what you teach people when they come to your church? And there was part of it, and, and I can't make real judgments, you know, and please don't judge any of these churches because we're only there for one week. Who knows what it's like every other week? But I I had to think, I had to ask myself the question, are we the church selling the idea that being a Christian is about working hard or simply about wishing hard? Because sometimes I think that song, wishing upon a star, makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. I think that's what we think God is. not really about what you do in your life. It's just about whether you wish for it to happen hard enough. 
That's kind of how a lot of Christians, I think, today think that's what we think prayer is. It's just wishing hard. Now, you know, we're in a series called Trading Up, if you're just joining us. Um, We started this last week, and we did some groundwork. Uh, We're going to get into the details a little bit more about, you know, this notion that the world is persistently trying to invert the ideas of Scripture so that if you do follow Jesus, if you follow a biblical notion of God, it, it... the world tries to make it seem like it is this huge sacrifice that's not worth it. And, um, you know, I think that's the opposite of what Scripture says, uh, that trading kind of a worldly life for a Christ-centered, gospel-centered one is, is trading up. It's, it's getting better. And today we're going we're gonna to really talk about the idea of why working hard is better than wishing hard. You know, my hope is that at the end of this, our hearts will be convinced that this is from Scripture and that we should step into it. And so if you guys have your Bibles, um, let's go ahead and open them up to 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, um, verse 24. If you don't have your Bible, you can look up at the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses uh, 24 through 27. And, um, in fact, I kind of want to do something a little bit different today. Can we all just read it together? It's, um, what is it? It's four verses. It's four verses, right? I think we can do it. So, um, let's just all read it together. Try to stay. Don't, don't be those people who read really fast or really slow. Just try to stay on a good pace, all right? So, um, so let's all read this together. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete? But only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Good job, guys. That was good. <laughs> um, so two points. Okay, two simple points. First point today. Remember why you're running. Okay, remember why you're running. You're running to win. Now, if, if you're a Christian, and, and Paul's speaking to Christians, and he's saying, Hey, this is what Christian life is about. Don't you know? Don't, don't you understand the nature of competition? Right? And he uses this example of running a race, and this would be something that uh, his audience would know about because there would be these, you know, like the Olympic Games or the Isthmian Games, these kind of ancient, you know, games, competitions that they would have where people would run or people would box. These were all normal things for Paul's time. And it's not, you know, they wouldn't be that different from what we think about the Olympics today. Well, they'll be kind of different, but not, not that different. And so we can understand it. We can understand what he's saying. He's saying, you get it, right? Like, they, won, they run to win because there's only one prize. Now he's not saying there's only one prize. Like, all the Christians are competing against each other, and then there's just going to be one winner. Like, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying, run like that is the case. You know, run as if you're competing for something. 
He says in verse 26, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. Right? And he's talking about somebody who's running a race and loses their way. Along, like, how ridiculous would that be, right? Like, if you're running a marathon and then you, you lose the course and you just kind of go off on your own. Or if you're boxing, if you've ever watched boxing, someone who's just swinging wildly, not hitting his opponent, he's saying, that's not me because I know what I'm running for. I know, I know what I'm going for. He goes on in verse 27. He says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. The literal translation of that kind of how the NASB or the NIV puts it, is I beat my body and make it my slave. I beat my body and make it my slave. This is the kind of dedication and hard work that is required. And he says that, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And this whole idea of disqualification, so just to give you a little bit of context, in the letter, you know, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul writes this letter to Corinth, the church of Corinth is a mess. Okay, they have all kinds of problems. They have, like, leadership issues. They have, like, unity problems. You know, people are splitting up. They're going different ways. They have problems with immorality. You know, and one of the issues he's addressing here is, if you go back to chapter 8, he's talking about people eating food sacrificed to idols. Okay, the, the problem that every church struggles with right now. I mean, we don't, we don't really know what that's about today. But back in that day, that would be a big problem because there would be this food that's sacrificed to idols, you know, other other gods, you know, quote-unquote gods in the market, and then people would buy it, and Christians would be confused, like, is it okay if I eat this or not? And so he basically, just to kind of make a long story short there, because we can't go in depth on that passage, but he kind of just says, hey, like, you should think about the conscience of your brother, right? So if, if they're going to be stumbled, you, sh- you probably shouldn't do it. Now, the issue was basically that there were these people in the church who thought, well, I know better, and my knowledge is all that matters. Right? Like, I, I know better. You know, I know I have the right theology, and I know that this food doesn't matter, and so it's fine. Like, these, you know, and they would call those other people, the people who didn't know better, essentially, like, quote-unquote, weaker. And they would say, oh, these weaker guys, they don't know better. I shouldn't change my behavior for the sake of these weaker people. Now, Paul is speaking directly, basically, to those people, and he's saying, you know what? I, Paul, Paul the Apostle, he says, I don't assume that I'm right. He says, I don't assume even my own salvation. Paul says this many times. He says, I don't want to be disqualified. See, one thing I fear is that there's too much of God being preached only as this unconditionally affirming, this gentle kind of daddy. You know, and this is actually one thing I noticed, um, checking out a lot of churches, but there was a lack of a sense of call. And again, I totally get the idea of wanting church to be really accessible and convenient. I certainly think that's good it's good for the church to be as accessible as possible, but we can never compromise the truth of the gospel. Part of that truth is that we're sinners. We need confession. We need repentance. We need discipline. We need to be challenged and stretched. We need to learn how to sacrifice. A lot of the things we want are just wrong. They're bad for us. We need to be corrected. 
Make no mistake, God is unconditionally loving. He is absolutely gracious and kind, and he forgives every single one of our sins because of the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross for you, for me. That's 100% true. If we humbly confess, if we ask for forgiveness, God will forgive us, of course. But God is also to be feared. He is all-powerful. He does not act according to our wants. He acts according to our good. And our good and our wants aren't always lined up. Paul knows that. He's like, I don't assume my own self. I don't judge. You know, he says in earlier in Corinthians, he said, I don't even judge myself. Because I know that my judgment of myself doesn't matter as much as God's judgment of me. So he lives his life every single day. Like, I discipline my body, and I essentially, he's saying, I beat it into submission. Like, and make it my slave. Because I want to live every single moment knowing that I'm running this race for Christ to win. Running with Christ requires far more self-discipline than any other earthly pursuit. Imagine for a second, okay, like you're actually running a marathon. You know, obviously training to run a marathon takes dedication. Some of you guys have actually done it, right? You guys are crazy. But, you know, um, that's amazing, right? And if you actually, it, to, to run a marathon, I think it's, it's kind of crazy, but imagine that you're trying to win the marathon. Not just run a marathon, not just finish the marathon, but your goal is like, I'm going to run the LA marathon, like 26 miles, and I'm going to, my goal is to win. I want to win. Let's say they put on, you know, there's a marathon, just whatever, Anaheim Marathon, right? It's a new, brand new marathon. They want people to run. No professionals allowed, right? Like anyone who's ever run a marathon before cannot run. And it's for a billion dollars. Like, would you, and, and, you know, for the winner, and you're like, oh, I really want to win this marathon. And then people are like, hey, let's go eat all you can eat barbecue. <laughs> you know, let's go. Are you going to that? If you really want to win this marathon, no, you're not, right? You're like, no, 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 no. I have, I have a goal. I have a goal. I'm trying to win this. In fact, what Paul says is even crazier than that. What he's saying right here about not being disqualified, he's saying that if I don't win this marathon, my life is actually on the line. My eternal life could be on the line here. So I'm going to run to win it. Imagine you had to win a marathon and your life was on the line. How hard would you train? What does your training regimen, if, if, if our life is a marathon and we're running to win, let me ask you, what does your training regimen look like? You know, your, your spiritual disciplines, your prayer, your reading, your worship, your fasting, in your work in your relationships, in your evangelism, in your service, in your mission? What, is, what, is it, what does it look like? Because it's important for us to know, like, any, anything we do in life will require hard work. You know, wishing will not get it done, right? Uh, any, for example, just like any relationship takes hard work. You, you know, and if you have any 
relationship in your life. If there, if there's any strong relationship you have in your life, you know that wishing will never get you there. Like no matter how hard you wish for it, at some point you have to either work for it or you don't work for it. And I'm only saying that because I know what that's like, right? Like, you know, I mean, I'll give you an example. Like my parents, my parents and I have had a very complicated relationship um, or I, I would say we had a complicated relationship for about 25 years. Uh, I had a terrible relationship with my parents. I'm very thankful. My parents are Christian. You know, they're still together. Um, and I'm very thankful for that. But my childhood was pretty difficult. Basically, uh, my dad has had nothing short of a revolutionary transformation in Jesus. Because when I was young, he was, like, angry, and he was, like, domineering and, like, abusive and... You know, I know, I like, I've, I've said things, you know, I've told, like, stories about my dad when, you know, when I was young and stuff like that, and I kind of, like, joke about it, but uh, I was, pre- like, really scared of my dad for pretty much, like, a lot of my, all of my childhood and a lot of my, even when I was in high school, and, um, you know, my family, we struggled a lot financially, we went through, like, we got our house foreclosed, you know, we lost everything, we used to live in this tiny apartment, like, you know, for, for those of you guys who are married, right, you guys know what it's like to, like, find a place to live. You know, and, like, uh, you know, and your first apartment, I remember our first apartment, in my first apartment, we were like, oh, this place is so small. But I lived in a smaller place with my whole family, you know. Uh, it was, like, a 600-square-foot apartment, two bedrooms with, like, five people lived in there. And it's, like, two adults and three grown children. You know, I was in high school, so not, like, a little kid. And it was, like, cockroach infested, and my car got stolen six times, and, like, our car's, you know, windows got bashed in and stuff like that. Like, all kinds of stuff happened when we lived there. One day, my brother and sister came home, and there was money just strewn across, like, the lawn, the front area. I don't know what the heck that was. It was, like, a bag of money, and it was probably, like, some drug money or something. And literally, they came inside, and they were like, oh, my gosh, what should we do? Should we go get that money? And I was like, dude, go get the money, <laughs> right? And then we went out, and the money was gone. And so, you know, God was trying to give us a gift, and we missed our chance. But, you know, it's like that's kind of – it was weird. Like, that was kind of the crazy, you know, childhood I grew up in. And, you know, a lot of you guys know I had, like, I had, like these crazy anxiety issues when I was young. And so my parents never really understood me. I never really understood my parents. There came a point around when I was – Uh, about to get married and it was basically like should I maintain this relationship with my dad or not and I remember we had this talk because I was like you know I I really want to and um, we had this like long talk and I I brought out a piece of paper and a pencil and I drew diagrams about (laughs) what was like where our relationship was and why it was the way that it was we talked about our history and all this stuff and the thing is, like, I knew at that point that it would take a lot of hard work to be in a relationship with my dad, both on his part and my part. And a huge part of the hard work on my part was owning all of the ways in which I messed this relationship up. So all of my entitlement and my immaturity and my unfair expectations, and my rebellion, and my sin, and my impetuous nature, and my, you know, childishness, like all these things that for years, what I said, instead of working at it, I always told myself that I wished my parents would change, because they were wrong, because they didn't understand me, you know, because they had made all the mistakes, 
And I never thought I had made any mistakes. I always thought I deserved better parents, not that they deserved, you know, a better son. And, and the hard work of owning that, which was very hard, and it didn't happen overnight. It took many, many years for me to realize, and also having my own kids to realize what a pain I can be as a kid. And the thing is, it's still so hard. It's still hard to, like, maintain this relationship. Nowadays, I'm, like, my parents' marriage counselor, so my dad will come. My parents watch, you know, our kids. And so when the kids are sleeping, my dad will be like, oh, you know what your mom said? Like, she said this. And I'm like, okay, Oma, like, why did you say that? Like, can you share your feelings? Like, how are you feeling? You know, and my parents don't like doing stuff like that because they're typical Asian parents, you know. And then they're, like, talking. And my mo- this literally happened last week, okay, this past week. My mom, she's crying. You know, she went back. She told her whole life story from when she was six years old. She shared for two hours. She's breaking down, you know, and she's, like, sharing all this stuff. She's talking about, like, growing up through the war, how her mom died when she was young, and, like, the things she had to do to take care of her siblings. Like, she's literally, like, pouring out her soul. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, you know, (laughs) like listening to all of it. And there's no way, there's no way many years ago that that would have happened. It's, It's happened because my parents and I have put, like, hard work into this relationship. They still carry, my mom's carrying baggage around from when she was six. My mom's like 70. And that's the thing, right? It's like, you know this. Any strong relationship that you have, you have worked hard for, and any relationship you care about, you're going to continue to work hard for. Wishing alone didn't get it done. It's not going to get it done. You've been committed and dedicated. And here's my question. Why do we think that maintaining and growing in a relationship with the God of the universe should be any different than that? That it simply comes down to wishing harder. That some magical passion is going to arrive in your heart. Rather than a commitment to act upon that which you believe. Like, do you ever do this? Do you ever do this like, I call it like CYA prayer. Do you guys know what that is? Do you guys know what CYA is? It's cover your blank. Right, should I do CYB? Maybe it's, maybe it's not pastoral for me to say. CYB, cover your butt, okay? Do you ever do that? You pray like that? Like, oh, my, my bad, God. Oh, my bad, we're good. You know, like, oh, I did it again, God, shoot. We're cool, though. You know, like that, and that's it. That's your whole prayer, right? Or you do something at work, or you have some relational issue, or something's going on at church, or something's going on with somebody, and you're just kind of like, oh, God, you know, cover it. I covered it. I prayed for it. It's covered. You don't, you, don't, you don't get to know God that way. Nobody gets to know anything that way. That's just covering yourself, right? If that's what you think Christianity is, it's bouncing from event to event, looking for some magical spirituality in a bottle. It's Sunday to Sunday, you know, or retreat to conference, to prayer night, to this, to that. And you're looking for something to spark your relationship with God. You're looking for every time you sit, you want a magical message. You want something immediately powerful. That's all you do. You just sit, you evaluate, you wait for it. It doesn't happen. And then you just go on with your life. You're like, maybe this isn't it. I got to go to the next thing. I got to find the next one. 
then I'm sorry to say your relationship with Christ will only ever be shallow. That's where it will remain. It's tempting, I know. Trust me, I know. Right? I don't like, uh, you know, we're, we're tempted to justify spontaneity in spirituality. Right? Like, ah, oh, no, it's gotta just, I just got to feel it. It just has to be in the moment. I have to feel it. And then when it happens, it's like, oh, no, that's God. Right? Sometimes, in fact, people in church wear that as a badge of honor. It's like, yes, that's what it's all about. Just that moment, I felt it. You know, and that's why churches go for this big production value. They want you to feel something, right? Like every time you sit there, it's going to be amazing. It's epic, right? Oh, the epicness of this service. I feel it. I'm, I'm totally naturally inclined towards that. I am not at all, and many of you guys know this, I'm not at all naturally inclined toward, like, organization. I'm, I'm not at all. Um, naturally, I'm terrible at it, and I've worked very, very hard to become just, like, competent at it. Like, barely, right? Like, I've, I'm not great or good. I'm just acceptable. Like, that, that's the level I've gotten because of the nature of my job. I have to at least be that level. Now, for those of us who feel that natural inclination towards, I don't, I don't want to do things that I don't feel like doing, I totally get you. That's how I am. But that's not how your disciplines should be. Let's be honest. That's just immature. Like, you don't do your job like that. You don't go to the gym and expect results like that. You don't do anything in your life like that. Our spiritual dis disciplines absolutely should not be random or spontaneous. Right? Mine aren't. Even though that's how I like to kind of live my life, they're not. I don't read a random passage every day. I don't read at random times every day. I don't pray for random things every day. I don't pray at a random time every day. At least I don't only pray that way. Like sometimes I'll do that. Sure, spontaneous prayer is good. But you're, you should have a disciplined prayer time. I don't come to church, you know, and then give like a random amount, right? Like whatever's in my pocket. This is what I'm going to give today, God. Here you go. You know, 735, you know, like, no, that's not, that's not what we should do, right? Like, you should budget. You should have a schedule. You should have a plan. God, this is what I commit to you. I don't randomly give to, like, missionary. I don't randomly preach. No, I prepared this sermon this whole week, right? I prayed about it. I looked into scripture. I went into commentaries. I don't just come up here like, hey, you know, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to preach today? I'll just do whatever. Now, is there such a thing as overplanned and overscheduled? Of course there is, okay? That's some of you guys. It's not me. It's some of you. You know who you are. I'm not going to look up right now. But we'll talk about that next week. Uh, when it comes to living out the core values of our lives, we must be scheduled and organized. Our spiritual acts should most of the time be habitual, not spontaneous. And just one last thing on this, because God himself is not random or arbitrary. He's not. Do you know what Genesis 1 is all about? It's about God bringing order to chaos. It's like the world, the universe is just chaotic, right? And what you see in Genesis 1 in God's creation is him ordering it. It's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create order out of this chaos. Like time, like days of the week. I'm going to create something to govern 
the day and the night. I'm going to separate, you know, land and water and sky. I'm going to make different kinds of animals. And then I'm going to put someone on the earth to govern all of it. That's humans. In doing that in our lives, we are emulating God in his glory. Now, real quick before I move to point two, okay? This, this, this part is like, remember why you're running, right? To win, you got to discipline your body for that. How can you stay motivated to live a life of habitual faithfulness? I'm going to give you three things real quick. Okay, if you don't have this, you need this, absolutely. Okay, one, you need a schedule and a plan. Right, so like our church, we offer a Bible reading plan. If you don't want to do that, that's cool. But you need some kind of plan. You can't just open the Bible randomly and read it every day. Not going to help you. Okay, you can't do it whenever you feel like it. Not going to help you because you're not going to feel like it most of the time. Two, you need goals. Right, you need goals like... I'm going to read the Bible this year, or I'm going to read the whole New Testament, or I'm going to read this book this month. I'm going to pray for these things. I'm going to fast for this many days. I'm going to give this much money to this missionary or this cause. I'm going to set aside this amount. I'm going to save this amount so I can give it. And the third thing you need, you need accountability. So when you have a plan and goals, you need to Tell other people in your life, like, hey, can you keep me accountable to this? Whether that's, that might be your spouse, you know, that might be your significant other, that might be your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad or your best friend. It might be your life group, you know, it might be people sitting next to you. But if you don't have those things, you will not grow in a life of habitual faithfulness. I'm going to do you a favor. If it's been a while since you've read the Bible consistently, okay, now if it's been a while, I'm not going to raise your hand. If it's been a while since you read the Bible, seven days in a row, seven days in a row, okay, then I'm going to challenge you, do it this week, okay? And I already did you a favor because we all read the Bible together earlier today, so you already got today covered, okay? Sunday, one day is covered. If you got here late, read what's on the screen right now. You're covered for today. Okay, so just Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the next six days, read the Bible every day. I'll even make it easier for you. Read Psalm 1 through 6, okay? There's, it's all going to be around like 10 to 15 verses, okay? None's going to be too long. I guarantee it's going gonna, it's gonna to be good for your soul. So next week you come in here and I say, did you read the Bible seven days in a row? And if you can say, yes, I did. Like, you will feel accomplished. Like, you will have accomplished that goal for this week. So I'm really challenging. Like, if it's been a while since you've done that, I'm really challenging you to do that this week. Like, write it down. Get a, get a tattoo or something. You know, like, like put it on your So you can remember. That's how, that's how crazy I am. Like, because I, I really want you to experience what it's like to be consistently faithful. To know that you could do it. I know you can do it. Here's the second point, okay? Very simple. Remember what you're running for. Now, they sound very similar, but slightly nuanced, okay? Remember what you're running for. Now, that is as in the prize, 
right? And so Paul, he says, only one receives the prize. He's talking about the prize. And then he, he talks about the prize. He says, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So he's saying as hard as marathon runners run, as hard as racers race in the world, they do it to receive this perishable wreath, you know, and actually what they would do is they would get this, you know, like a wreath, right, like something that goes over your neck, that thing. And actually in in Paul's time, it was made out of celery. (laughs) That's what the wreath was actually made out of. So he's literally saying, like, that's what they do it for. They train their body. They beat their body into submission. They make it their slave so that they can win this wreath of celery. Even if it's like gold medals now, whatever people run for. He's saying, we do it for a prize that will last forever. That no one can ever take away from you. That no one will ever forget. Because it will be written in the book of life, because God will keep it for eternity. He will remember it, and in eternity, his memory will be the only one that matters. We should train much harder than the marathon winner because, because the prize we run for is much greater. Okay, now, so one of the other, so I did all this other stuff over my sabbatical. A lot of it was just like personal stuff because like, um, I had to, like, you know, fix, like, my health and stuff. Like, I was, like, exercising. <laughs> so like we had to, like, get our finances in order. So we were doing all this other kind of, like, a life insurance. You know, I told you guys some of this stuff. But um, one of the things I was doing was, like, I was looking at this financial stuff, and I stumbled upon this guy named Dave, named Dave Ramsey. So I don't know if you guys know who this is, but it's actually this Christian financial kind of, like, guru, right? And he's not, like, you know how I told you guys before I ran into those, um, those weird people who are trying to recruit, uh, who are trying to recruit me for some kind of like financial cult or something. Like, so I ran into another one again. That's another story for another day. But it's not like that, right? This is not like a get-rich-quick scheme. You know, it's not like a multi-level marketing. You know, it's not like a pyramid scheme or anything like that. Basically, this guy is a Christian, right? He's helped like a million people get out of debt and like get their finances in order. He's actually helped ten thousand people become millionaires. You know, by net worth. And they're not like rich people. They're, they have like $50,000 salaries, you know, income. And um, the way he's done it is that he has just preached basically financial responsibility, just spending less than you make, paying down all your debts, saving for retirement. That's it. That, that's basically his whole thing, right? And I, and I so I, I like looked at his, I, I ran across like some of these things about compound interest, okay? Now, I'm not, don't worry, this is not going to be like a financial thing, but you can learn something financially if you, if you want, okay? Um, so, if you invested 40 cents per day, that's $12 a month, starting at age 25, at age 65, when a lot of people retire, this is how much you would have invested, $5,670. Now, 40 cents a day, is not a lot. $12, $12 a month, that's like a Netflix, it's less than a Netflix subscription, right? So that's how much you would have put into this account, and this is how much um, would be in your account, $190,000. Isn't that crazy? If you only put in this much money, you would have this much money. So, you know, $185,000 basically would just be in your account that you didn't earn. You didn't do anything for that money. It just grew over because of compound interest. 
right? It just grew through basically like the market, like they invested, right? And before you say like, oh, the stock market is volatile. So the stock market over the past like 40 years basically has gone up 7%, just pretty much over any period of time that you look at it, right? So um, real quick, just to do one more, okay? If you invest a $10 per day, I know it's a lot more, right? $275 per month starting at age 25. You will have invested this much money, $132,000. Now, it sounds like a lot, but it's over 40 years, right? And in your account, you would have a million dollars. A million dollars. Like, this is less than what most people uh, spend on a car payment, right? Now, so I, I, so I learned this, right? Now, the first question I had was, why doesn't everyone do this? Right? Like, if that's all you have to do, and forget this one. Like, let's even go to the previous one. It's, it's 12 bucks a month. It's not that much money, right? Now, it's, you know, a lot of us are past 25. So, you know, whatever, take your age. It would still be a lot of money. So, basically, three reasons people don't do this. One, um, they don't understand the math, which is understandable. Two, they don't understand the market, which is also understandable. But three, the main reason, statistical analysis has shown this, the main reason that people don't do something like this is because they can't give up something small now for something much bigger later. That's the main reason, right? Because if you can afford a $30,000 car, it's really hard to get a $20,000 car and then invest the rest of the money. If you can afford a $30,000 car, you're going to buy a $30,000 car. In fact, if you can afford a $30,000 car, what most people do is they buy a $40,000 car and they finance it. That's what all America does. You know, most, like the majority of Americans, the richest country in the world, do not have $1,000 saved. Don't have $1,000 in their savings account. Now, obviously, I'm not here to preach finances, right? I mean, I don't, I don't care if you do this or not, right? Like, you can do it if you want. It's probably good for you, I mean, I guess. But, you know, I don't really care, right? Uh, the main reason, uh, my point here is not to get you to invest in retirement, but to recognize the power of delayed gratification. The Bible speaks repeatedly about this, right? Like to wait on the Lord. Do you guys ever see that? You read the Bible, it says, wait on the Lord. You know, like Psalm 37, 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Right, Psalm 62, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in him. Trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord, O my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. When the Bible talks about that, when it says wait for the Lord, it doesn't mean wait and do nothing. It means wait on the Lord and continue to walk in faithfulness to him. Because if you continue to walk in faithfulness to the Lord, he will reward you. He will answer you. He will hear you. He will bring to you what you desire and what you need. Now, 
we should, well, you know what? I'm just going to close with this last passage. This is First Peter, okay? This is First Peter 3, I mean, First uh, Peter 1, 3 through 7. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, just real quick right there, right? This, this first part. That's talking about, again, this future inheritance. Now, the Bible never really spells it out. You know, sometimes people say, like, oh, you can have a big house in heaven. Nothing in the Bible like that, right? It's not really like that. But there will be some kind of great inheritance, some kind of great reward we'll receive, something that we'll be happy to get, something that we'll be even happier to lay down at the feet of Jesus, being in his glory. That's, that's what we're going to get, and that's what he talks about. That's, that's, again, what Peter is talking about here. But then, right here in verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's two things, okay? One, there is something amazing that's kind of indescribable that we're going to get at the end if we're faithful to Jesus. But there is also something that you get when you're able to stay faithful to Jesus through trial. There is this reward. There is the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold. There is this this assurance of your faith, of your trust in God. There is this joy that you have that can survive even a very difficult circumstance. Right, when you can love and serve and forgive, even when the object of that love or forgiveness or service is completely undeserving of it. Like when you can do that, then there is some tested genuineness in your faith. Like when you can continue to just read and pray and serve, even when every single time it's not amazing. When you can continue to love, even when that person's not loving you back necessarily. See, when you continue to persist in faithfulness, when you can trust in God, even when there's no clear path or answer right in front of you, and just on a personal note, that's my prayer. That's what I pray for you guys when I pray for you guys. You know, like whenever you tell me something's going on, and you'd be like, pray that it goes well. You know, I do pray that it goes well usually. But I also pray, like what I really pray is like, God, I pray that you would grow faithfulness and affection for you through this circumstance, through whatever's happening. Like, see, there is a kind of spiritual compound interest that happens when we are consistently faithful to Christ. Because it'll start out small. It's hard to do that in the beginning. But when you continue over and over, 
time and time and time again. And the genuine testedness of your faith proves itself over and over and over and over again. When Jesus answers time and time and time and time again. When he forgives you over and over and over again. When you confess and you're forgiven by other people and the community of God. And you feel the sense of God's acceptance over and over and over again. Even when you mess up. Even when you fail. Even when you're not perfect in it. None of us is perfect in it. But it develops in you this faith and this hope and this trust that is more valuable than anything that you can find in the world. That, that's our goal as a church. It can't just be about production value, how entertaining or digestible Sunday is. As much as that is valued in the, you know, quote-unquote grammable world that we live in today, it's not what actually helps us. It's not a good goal. What helps us is remembering Christ and his work and his love for us demonstrated on the cross and his sacrifice for each of us. And his goal for us, his children, is to build that habitual faithfulness to Christ in light of that gospel that our hearts learn how to bear fruit even in the harshest of conditions and to trust God and consistently grow in joy in every facet of our lives. That's what God has for us if we would step into it. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so, so much for how you love us, God. Your love for us is unconditional, God. Your grace for us is unmatched by anything in this world, God, by anything we would chase or pursue. God, the life that you have for us, the race that you would have us run, God, the the purpose and the mission that you would put on our hearts. God, we know, we know it's what we need. We know, God, it's what we're looking for. We know it's the only place we will find ultimately fulfillment, joy, the reward. But it's hard, God, to live in this life. There are things pulling at us left and right. There are lies being spouted at us all day, every day. God, we pray that you would help us, protect us, God. Secure us in your word. Help us, God, to discipline ourselves, God, to have a plan, to have a schedule. God, to have goals, to have accountability so that we can run this race to win for the ultimate prize that is found only in you, Jesus. We entrust it to you, God. Help us as a community to keep one another accountable to that, to pick each other up when we fall, to spur each other on when we're doing well, God, to celebrate our victories. trust that to you. We thank you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.